Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from the athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, bonjour, how are you? Bonjour, comment ça va? <laughs> Magnifique, bien. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Sounded good. Yes, we are so excited. It is one year to go until Paris 2024. We are taping this on Wednesday the 26th, which is actually the day of one year to go. So it's very, very exciting around these parts. Also terrifying here in the Keep the Flame Alive podcast headquarters areas. We got a lot of work to do to get ready to go there. So many social media posts, and it's really, really exciting. We got lots of Paris news coming later in the show. And you were right about that ticket drop. And people have been very successful today in getting gymnastics all around, gymnastics final, 100 meter, some swimming finals. So there were great tickets in this drop. Hopefully you got some of those. I want to say before we get into one year to go, if you enjoyed last week's hockey turf talk, you might be interested to know that Paris 2024 will be the last time this type of turf will be used in hockey. And if you'd like to know what's coming next, you can become a patron at the silver medal level and up and get the scoop from last week's guest, Paul Campheis. Go to flamealifepod.com slash support and click on the become a patron button today. I'm so excited about the hockey turf. I'm still excited. Smurf turf. So it is one year to go till Paris 2024. So that means we get to have a visit from our friend, Ken Hanscom. Ken is chief operating officer at Ticket Manager and a recognized event and ticketing expert and an influencer in the Olympic movement with corporations and sponsors. He has been featured on NBC's primetime Olympic coverage, regularly contributes on ESPN Radio, USA Today, MSN, International Business Times, and publishes a blog on the business of the Olympics. We talked to him about planning your trip to Paris. Take a listen. Ken Hanscom, thank you so much for joining us again. We are one year out from Paris, and a lot of things have been happening. So let's start with tickets. What do we yeah. know? What do we know is coming up? What do we know about what's happened? It's been a great start to ticketing. And I think you're always going to hear complaints and positives about ticketing. We have some trends, and we'll probably talk about those in terms of where some of the demands and some of the interest has been, which is definitely different. But we've talked about the way that Paris is being ticketed is completely different than it has been in previous Olympics. And we have, obviously, it's going through the organizing committee. They're running all that. There's no more ATRs. And so it's more of a worldwide distribution model. And I, and I think when you look at how the first couple of phases have gone, and I think well, the number is somewhere around four and a half million-ish tickets or somewhere in that neighborhood, depending on whose numbers you look at, I think it's been very, very successful. First, we had those packs. And for people who wanted to just get two or three packs and kind of start with that portion of the experience, that was very successful. We had the single ticket sales and what those were, that was really more of a lottery system again. I was very fortunate. I got in on the first day of the lottery. I know a number of other people got in as well. I was surprised at how much ticket and what events were there. And some of them, which are typically the super high demand events, things like women's gymnastics, team finals, swimming finals, those stayed around for a few days. So you didn't just have to be the luck of the draw getting in on the first day to get those. You were able to do that. So I think in terms of like to the public version of, of the sales, I think those have gone very well. We have not been had any situations where there are people waiting for hours in a queue to get in, maybe minutes sometimes, but that's standard with any on sale. There haven't been any like significant technical issues. So I think overall that process from a public standpoint has been very good, right? a very, very positive and big successful start for Paris. Well, it seems like there's a little bit of growing pains with people understanding this new ticket model because 
like we said, not everybody's going to be happy, obviously, but it's yeah. understanding that even though there are lotteries, it's still kind of first come first serve. Yeah. And even with the resale, people just don't seem to be wrapping their heads around how resale will work this time around. Yeah. You know, we really have never had a robust resale market for the Olympics. I mean, there were some with London and, and maybe Sochi, but really Rio was the first one that had it, but the demand for Rio was pretty muted, right? Zika, I think about one third of a number of American travelers ended up going that was originally expected. Then we had the Pyeongchang and there was obviously winters are smaller and then some people were scared off with everything that was going on with, with North Korea at the time. And then we were really starting to build kind of to this push portion of the experience up to Tokyo, obviously when COVID hit. So a lot of it is new. And I think it is going to be competitive. I think that's the one thing about Paris. I've been a little bit surprised at this point, how many people are interested and committed to going. I know we're in kind of a new world where last three or four years, everyone's focused on experiences. And, you know, we really haven't had like a massive Olympic Games probably since London, right? With what happened with Rio and obviously Tokyo. So there's all this, what's called pent up demand. That's a popular term to use in the sports and ticketing world right now. That's kind of being focused towards this. And there's a lot of people that haven't been through it. And the reason I started doing things like the Facebook group and, and other things is because what I figured out was like, I actually understand how to do this. And it's really hard your first time. It was hard for me my first time. And once you do it a few times, you understand that. But I think the resale is going to be a powerful way for people, especially last minute, to be able to change things. But it's not going to be available till spring. And so probably waiting to have your entire allocation of tickets. I know some people are going to do that. There are people in the Olympics going back to gosh, Vancouver, Sydney, even Beijing, that are, are just going to wait till resome and, and pick up what they can off of there because they know there's going to there's gonna be some number that are going to show up there no matter what. So with resale, just very basics. If you've got yeah. tickets that you can't use, you can put them on the resale and yeah. there will not be significant markups, correct? Understanding today is that there won't be any transactions or transa transaction fees. Now, there may be a nominal one euro, two euro, 50. I think some of that stuff might happen, but it's not like going to a Vivid C or a StubHub or a TickPick where you're going to see like a buyer's fee of like 18 or 20% and then a seller's fee of the same thing. So ultimately the cost of your ticket is 50% more. Yes, there's going to be what you want to call a gray market or a secondary market probably through a couple of international marketplaces. Those aren't authorized. Paris and other Olympics have been pretty successful at, at canceling tickets or figuring out which tickets are going to be there. But generally speaking, the authorized Paris resale will be a relatively real time. And I say that is it might be five minutes your ticket gets posted. It might be 30 seconds. It could be 10 minutes where when you choose to say, hey, I'm going to give you these tickets to Paris, then they will post them and make them available to the public. And then once they sell, they'll leave your account go to the other person's account. And at some period thereafter, you'll get payment. And those specific terms haven't been disclosed. It's probably not going to be immediate but it could be a week, two weeks, a post-Olympics, something along those lines. But it's really just, even if you think about a normal marketplace, like a, like I said, like a Vivid Seeds or a Ticketmaster or somewhere like that, where you can post your tickets as a season ticket holder or sell them, it's going to be a very similar model. You're just not going to see the fees. A lot of people complaining there weren't as many 24 euro tickets as they expected. What was your <clears throat> opinion of the prices? It's a seven and a half billion dollar event. The ticketing to some extent has to pay for it. Some of the prices are same or lower than Tokyo, some are more. And I think it, it's a very difficult balance for any committee to figure out like what is the right amount to ensure great public access to things at a very low cost, mix that with premium and hospitality. And when we're talking about these pricing of tickets, we're not even talking about the on-location ones, which are in these you know other higher categories, but they're also uh, more expensive because they have the hospitality assets with them. So I, there are a lot they went very, very quickly. They clearly were, from my experience and people I talked to, way more sought out than in previous games. And so I don't think you never have enough category ticket, D tickets. You just can't. The demand is too high for an event like this. Well, I don't want to compare it to Taylor Swift, but you could sell at Taylor Swift for seven years straight, right? And you're never going to have enough tickets for that. And an event like this in a city like Paris, you're never going to have enough category Cs and Ds. You're just not. You can, you'll always be able to sell through them. So you mentioned hospitality tickets. You want to explain yeah. what those are? What happened is about three years ago, two and a half, three years ago, the idea is they were thinking about how we're going to do ticket differently. And rather than having all these ATRs and kind of all these individual things that countries went to, they said, we're not only going to have a single ticketing system, but we want to have one partner through which all what we call hospitality. Hospitality usually means that you are combining 
some set of additional experiences. It could be free food and beverage. It could be a club that you go to either at the venue or outside the venue. And they have a mix of these. And, and those are included with your tickets. And as part of that, it kind of grosses up the price of the tickets you know, fairly significantly, uh, fairly more exclusive type experiences. And they have different levels in, in, in terms of whether gold, silver, bronze. It just means a type of maybe experience or alcohol or food that you have access to. And so as part of this, on location made a bid as part of a bidding process, won the bid to, to do this for the next three games. So on location is with us for Paris, Milan, and LA twenty twenty eight. And what they are affected, they are the official hospitality provider. They are very well known. They are very well experienced. The, you know, they do the Super Bowl, right? So in terms of top of the top sorts of experiences that they create. And sometimes these hospitality assets will also include things like hotels and during certain waves, three to five days waves, and you can kind of pick and choose. And so there is a significant number of tickets, whether it's 600,000, half a million, you know, million, whatever number of t- tickets those are available through those hospitality. And those are generally going to be your higher category tickets, your premium. They do have in some venues, they do have kind of suite level sort of sort of experiences. And and then and the tickets are, are often available through those as well. Those are not part of any lottery. You can just go on the site and buy Locking. them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting because you have on location and then regionally, similar to a- ATRs, we have, they have what they call sub distributors. And some of them are, are people that, that we've heard of or have been in the past. I think ATPI Canada is a sub distributor for, for on location. Fortius is a sub distributor that is down in Australia, New Zealand, has another a number of other regions. So there's, there's these various sub distributors, but they're all selling the exact same hospitality package, which is very different from the ATRs. And from the beginning, they they started their sales, I want to say in like January, February, a little before all the lotteries, because if someone was really wanting to secure what certain level of tickets, then they would be able to get those. And you can go do those anytime. The pricing is somewhat dynamic. It does change. Not as you go through the process, just over time, we've seen different prices for different levels. There's been some that you know are very expensive, like you'd expect for gymnastics, opening ceremony, that sort of thing. And there's been some that have been very reasonably priced. Uh, BMX has been one of the biggest surprises, I think, in terms of its popularity with some of the other urban sports. But some of those markups on those tickets with hospitality, more or less than 30 or 40% for like a $200 ticket, which in, in the hospitality arena, it may be expensive for some people. It's, it's very reasonable in terms of what people generally see in terms of that. Okay. So resale platform we expect to see in the spring. How many Light more spring. ticket drops do we think we're going to see? We're going to see at least one. So effectively, when you do all of the math, there's somewhere around 3 million tickets that have not, quote, quote, been sold. And, and then it's really fuzzy math. It's really fuzzy math when we talk about lumps. We know there's 10 million tickets for Paris. The IOC has come out and said at the end of June that 6.8 were sold. You know, there was a 2 million gap in between the numbers that Paris announced between their Make Your Games packs. And then single ticket sales and, you know, sometimes that 2 million is a combination of things sold through on location. And another area is that, you know, a lot of the National Olympic committees, they get an allocation of tickets, whether it's for some of their sponsors or some of their athletes or, you know, however to use them. So that 2 million, it's not really disclosed right now what there are. So it gives somewhere around 3.2 million left. And I suspect some of those will go also be sold through hospitality and otherwise. Some of those will make their way to the public. You know, when you think about an event like this, it's 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 just impossible. I, I think from when you're trying to get interest and you're trying to drive excitement around something, you can't just have all your tickets sold out a year in advance, right? You need to be because there's people who are not going to decide to go until nine months, six months, three months, and so they'll likely be likely follow similar patterns that we've seen with previous Olympic games. That there'll be another five major kind of on sell first come first serve. I don't know. Will be half a million? Will be two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand? Will be a million? You know, the committee will decide all all those sorts of things, and then we'll see various things happen as different allocations from different sponsors go back and forth. As different countries who got their allocations say, "Hey, we're going to use some of these. We're not going to use some of these." They'll usually come back into the mix, and whether or not they'll go directly to the normal sales process for primary or they'll go on resale, that remains to be seen. But there's somewhere around three point two million tickets that have not been officially sold yet. That's a lot. That's a lot of tickets. So you get your tickets. Now you got to figure out a place to stay. And I know in the Facebook group, there has been so much discussion about this. So where do we start looking for some place to stay? It's one of the things when you're planning a trip like this, you want to have everything set as soon as you can. And so there's just like this desire, like, well, I got some tickets. I have to have a hotel room. And invariably what happens every single cycle is, and it happens for World Cup too, is that everyone goes out and says, oh yeah, this Airbnb is available. They go ahead and book it. And then like two days later, they get a cancellation. And then it happens again and it happens again. 
Why does it happen that way? Well, a lot of people who manage Airbnb, they're thinking about the next 12 months. They're not thinking 18, you know, 24 months out where some folks were trying to book and then there's this frustration growing and you kind of have to do some education around like, yeah, it's kind of this, this is expected. And sometimes that happens with hotels that generally will happen with smaller hotel groups or individual hotels that maybe don't have the same level of, of systems or integrations that maybe like, let's just call it like a hotel chain like Marriott or Hilton has. So as we approach, I think we're ending kind of kind of that, that that phase right now. I think as you get to within one year, the risk of those sorts of things happening are going to be much lower because there's going to be so much energy around Paris 2024, both in Paris, if people are pricing their Airbnbs, most of the, the hotels already know about it or thinking about it. So you're, you're, what you don't see is you don't see people say, oh yeah, I should be charging $300 or $500 for this room and it's only listed 200 so I'm going to cancel this. What we also have happening this summer is, is, you know, all these Americans are traveling to Europe <laughs> again. And I was just couple of, there a couple of weeks ago, and, and there's a lot of Americans in Europe. And they've already driven the prices up. A hotel, a mid-level island, that, okay, I'm the cost of a, unless a standard, like a flagship Hilton property, and the lawn's like $450, $500 a night. The same with the Marriott's and those sorts of things. And so I think when you start looking and thinking about pricing for next year or looking at how, where do you start with hotel rooms, Obviously, the biggest thing is budget, right? And that that's going to determine where you can go. But from there, you know, I think there's a couple things to realize is that as soon as the Olympics bids are announced and awarded to somebody, a lot of the Olympic committees, a lot of the hospitality providers, and a lot of the other sorts of providers go in and lock a lot of the major hotels up on contracts. So if you're looking to stay at the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons or whatever kind of top hotel there in Paris, it's not available unless you get it through a package. It's just not going to be available or you know somebody that happens to be in that. And that also trickles down to a lot of the other, you know, maybe your five stars and your four stars where, where, where you have a lot of that. And so ultimately, when we get to what, July 26th, we'll, we'll see what's available. Now, Paris is a big city and there's over 100,000 hotel rooms and that's very similar to London. And so there's going to be availability. It's not going to be like Rio where like, you're just trying to find some place to stay because there's like 25,000 hotel rooms in all of Rio. So I think there's going to be a lot there. And we're going to get to a point now where you, when you want to start looking, you're going to want to be a little bit strategic about where you start and how, how you want to look at things. But I would say as you get within a year, you're really going to start seeing less of these sort of cancellations um, a lot of these less complaints. What you're going to see is a lot of disappointment around, well, hey, I really want to stay at the Hilton or the Ritz-Carlton or name your hotel, and it's not available. A lot of those hotels just are not going to be available. So the IOC had an agreement with Airbnb. What does that look like in terms of what we as normal spectators will notice? Yeah. Oh, they're a top sponsor, right? And I may have missed it. I have not seen a specific announcement about what they are doing for Paris. There were some for Tokyo with refunds and guarantees and those sorts of things. It could be very possible that we see announcement with a one year to go as they're drumming up excitement about what that will be. So we don't know. What I have talked with folks and I've heard of is there have been some cases where Airbnb has gone and secured some spaces that they've made available to the what I would call the Olympic family, the broader Olympic family, which includes athletes, athletes' families, includes organizing bodies, those sorts of things. But I don't think there's been a big splash yet in terms of really knowing what Airbnb is going to contribute and or what they will do for Paris. Paris historically has not been very friendly, I guess I would use the words, towards Air, Airbnbs, sugarcoating that a little bit there. So there are probably is likely some tensions that between the IOC and Paris 2024 that they're probably all figuring out together right now. Is there anything weird for people who have not been to France before to know about Parisian hotels? I, I would just say European hotels in general are smaller. The rooms themselves are quite a bit, my experience has been quite a bit smaller than what you'd expect for a comparable hotel in, in the U.S. I would say more of them have seem to have pretty darn good breakfasts included with them. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, not a whole lot that, that I've recently experienced. It's really about the hotel size. And you know, if you got a family of four and trying to put them in one room, I think that that's a lot more challenging in Paris than in actually most of Europe, right? It's not just Paris than it is here in the U.S. Okay, flights. One year out. The calendar comes out for the flights. Yeah. Do we need to book the flights now or can we keep our powder dry a little? 
you can go either way. And the reason I'm kind of hesitating, what I generally do is I look at kind of what the current prices are for the next six months, right? Not for Paris. And I kind of set some parameters and I just kind of let things go a little bit, right? If I don't have a flight by January 1st, I'm not going to freak out or worry about that. But some people really just like to have everything set, know that they're going to do it and do that. So if they come out and that's important to you and you might pay $500 more flight, again, I'm throwing out numbers here, and that's going to give you some level of peace for the next six months, then maybe that's worth it. Maybe that's worth it. But there's going to be flights all over Europe. I mean, you can fly into, what, Frankfurt and take a four-hour train to get to Paris. Not that I would recommend that, but like if you're really in a pinch and you're trying to save money and, and whatever else, and you have to do the whole time value comparison, what's the value of your time versus money, and, and whether or not you really want to go to Frankfurt and maybe spend a night or two there. Like You have to do all of that, but Paris is a big city. A lot of flights go there. And ultimately, when you have an Olympics in a city, you usually have a lot less people that travel there for the general standard tourism stuff. It's like, I don't go. So the question is, is tourism going to be that much larger in Paris? Traditionally, it hasn't worked that way. It didn't work that way for London, where the tourism aspect is higher during the Olympic period. People say, I want to stay away from Paris this year because everyone's going to be there for the Olympics. And then you also have a number of Parisians that generally will leave the city in July and August. So you don't have to rush. Well, might prices be higher? Maybe. They'll probably be higher right at the one year to go. Yeah, a lot of people have been talking about that, flying to another city and taking the train in. Yeah. How reasonable and is that to do? In Europe, it's pretty reasonable. It's pretty reasonable to do, but it's going to cost you a day, right? It's going to cost you a day. Now, if you're planning to do other cities, either before or after Paris, and you can fit it in and it makes sense for your trip, absolutely. But to do that just to save 200 bucks or, or whatever the number is, I, I think you're losing in the end. I think you're losing in the end. Okay. Transport. We're talking about taking trains. Yeah. Sounds like it's going to be crowded. We're going to have a lot of people. We got a lot of venues and we're talking metros and buses. So what do we know about getting around the city and how much time that's going to take? It's pretty easy to get around Paris. They have a fantastic metro system. I mean, it's a very walkable city too. I mean, I think that's one of the fantastic things about Paris. Now, I probably walk more than most people. I think Ashley and I average about walking 15 miles a day when we were there back in September, but we walked all over the city. And some days we didn't even take the metro, but the metro was super, super easy to use. Paris may request that people work from home, similar to like they were planning to do in Tokyo during the Olympics. Or maybe all, not to mention it's a higher vacation time. So you may not have a general population that's using these as much. I personally would trust the underground more than I would above ground in terms of timing. You don't have to deal with traffic. Even in a city with like, like Paris, you're, you have lots of small, small streets. And even with the Olympic lane, like those things can, can take quite a bit longer. So what I would say is, I, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to be taking the metro to pretty much every event that I go to. How much time should people add for getting into the venue? 30 minutes. That's what I would say. It's better, always better to be safe than sorry on the, these kinds of things. And it, it all depends, right? Do you want to take a whole bunch of pictures of the venue? Do you want to take pictures when you get inside? It's You, know, you can't maybe think about like, like going to like an NBA playoff game or uh, any sort of event like that. You're going to have security. You are going to have lines that you're going to have to wait in. And if there's other things that you want to do or have refreshments beforehand, then add 15, 20 minutes for basically for each one of those items that you want to do. You know, you expect the first couple of days as you would with any large event like this, it's probably going to take a little bit longer. So maybe you pad that a bit. And then kind of once things are, are rolling pretty well, then I think that the max you're probably going to need. If you're just really just trying to get there, watch event and bail, maybe probably 30 minutes or so. Because Jill's going to need her Diet Coke before she sits down. Yeah. Okay. I'll get it. Well, well you I'll can't get, get wine in there. At least the last, the recent release, I saw no alcohol in the venue. So, right. Is, is that strange for a European venue to not allow drinking? I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It's very interesting. Let's, let's, we'll see how that develops. Let's see how that develops. Has that been true at other Olympics, or has there always been alcohol in the venues? I'm trying to remember London right now. Absolutely in Rio, because I drank too many scorbeers because you know i got every single one because in rio they had the different cups that you got the beer in that had all the different things and so to complete that collection i had i was forced to drink a lot of beer despite my uh wishes not to uh <laughs> but i'm pretty sure in london you could too i may be wrong in that that happens when things are, are almost 12 years ago at this point but yeah it, that was a little bit of a surprise right because that also tends to be a revenue generator at, as well. And so whether it's deferring costs or to you contributing money back to the to the committee to, you know, to pay for the $7.5 billion to do the Olympic Games, it's a bit of a surprise. So not to be confused with hospitality packages, we've got hospitality houses. Yes, these are awesome. 
These so let's best. talk a little bit about what we know so far. Yeah, there's going to be at least 20 hospitality houses. And I think it's going to be some of the best experiences. And, and, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's always really good to talk about. There's so many things you can do at the Olympics. Yes, you go for sport, but you go for a lot of other things. Obviously, people are going to go for culture of Paris. and want to go to museums and other things like that. But you meet so many great people. And you meet people from different countries and different cultures. And, and one of the ways you do that is a lot of countries like to sh- demonstrate their culture for the world that, that is coming to Paris, whether it's coming to their sport, their food, their art, their entertainment that they have. And what they do is they open the, what they call hospitality houses or country houses, depending on it. And the, there will be some that will be maybe uh, like brand oriented, like some of the, the top sponsors, like we've had Samsung and others do their, their house as well. But a lot of them are going to be country-based houses. India is going to do a house for the first time. Yeah, that they usually do the summers. I mean, the list goes on. You have Club France, which is going to be massive in the park. And there's going to be one park area where I think there's going to be, I think, eight right now different houses. The Holland House is actually going to be the Team NL house. It's coming back. It's not doesn't have the Heineken name anymore. But that apparently they will have Heineken beer. But that's always been one of the greatest experiences because that's the one house where it is guaranteed, where every athlete signs a contract that if they win a medal that day, that they will make an appearance that night and be celebrated. And so if you want to go see an Olympic medalist, the Team L House is one of the places to do that. It's always one of the most popular places to get into. And that's without even talking about the Team USA House. And the Team USA House this year for the first time is as some level of public access. And that level of public access comes through on-location and on-location packages that can be bundled with Team USA Hospitality. And the Team USA house is going to be in the former stock exchange right in the middle of the opera district. Uh, it's a massive property that can uh, host a lot of people. And I think that'll be a great, great place to be. I know I'll be there quite a bit myself to meet athletes, meet other Americans and others as well. So, I mean, that's kind of a brief overview, but, you know, pretty much every house has a schedule with, you know, some of them have nightlife and are known for partying at night. They generally have some of their food, some of their, of, of their drink and spirits that, that are from their country. And obviously cultural and entertainment that are usually provided. And they usually are open through the day and sometimes they'll open until 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. Do you expect to get any sleep while you are in Paris? No. <laughs> no. Sleep is unimportant. Yeah, until until, until I come back. On the hospitality houses, you mentioned that to get tickets for Team USA because it is ticketed, yeah. you have to go through on location for that. What do those tickets run right now? Do you know? So they're bundled in pricing with the actual ticket with the actual ticket themselves. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit it's opaque that way versus you you have an add on and it's an X amount of dollars. So it, it's bundled in, in there in the price. I want to say it was five hundred, but I can't remember. Okay. Do you think that if they don't sell the tickets enough tickets that way that they will unbundle it somehow and offer them up closer to the I think they're gonna, I'm pretty sure they're gonna sell enough that way. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Team right. USA House is generally has always been the most desirable and typically exclusive place because of the number of athletes, because of the number of celebrities and folks that, as well as the celebrations that happen there. Not to mention just simply us travels better than any other country because of how many people we have that, that support the Olympics. So the demand is always, always super high there. There will be, and there's going to be a mix. Some of these houses are going to be completely open. You can walk in, walk out, or there's lines. And maybe the lines are 15, 20 minutes for Swiss and Austria House. I think if I remember back in 2016 that they had lines that could take up to half an hour to get into. Some are going to be ticketed, and they'll be not necessarily ticketed like uh, Team USA House, but usually Team NL, formerly the Heineken Holland House. They would have a you know ticketing that would open six months in advance, and they generally sell out all their tickets. Theirs were pretty reasonably priced. It's like 15. I think Pyeongchang was 15 or 17 maybe euro per person to be able to get in there and have those experiences. Might have, been, might have been a little bit more than that, but not too much. Okay. So we should start looking as well for hospitality houses that will be selling tickets and when they're going to start selling them because that could vary with the house, correct? It, it absolutely will. And most of them are probably waiting until after the one-year announcement to do that because there's several that are unannounced that are just waiting for that and they're still finalizing. There's still a few of them that are actually even considering which location that they're going to be in. But it's it's going to be a big part of Paris 2024 and more so than London, Rio, Pyeongchang, Sochi, or even possibly Tokyo. Just the number of countries that are having their own houses is, is pretty exciting. I mean, you could, you could spend two or three days just doing that. 
We don't have that many days, Ken. Well, he had time between events. Hopefully an event in the area, kind of, kind of plan out the day. But the Olympics are busy times. The Olympics are busy times. Do you feel like going in with a very strict plan is helpful? Or do you like, you, you like it a little looser. I know you're a little bit of a looser oh. <laughs> traveler. Well, no, we, we already know every event that we're going to attend right now. I think, unfortunately, I have most of the tickets for them. Right? So we're going back to that first lot, lottery. I was able to get the full thing there. I think here's how, you know, it depends on where you go. The first week, second week, or if you're there the whole time. I'm there the whole time. But I think the first week is so much more hectic than the second week. And the reason is, is there's three times as many events because you have all the group play or pool play that you have. And so you, when you talk about just the sheer number of matches and sessions that are happening in a given day, it is impossible to keep up with. I mean, I know I go back to wherever I'm staying and I'd like try to like go through like the NBC highlights and everything just to see everything that I missed from it. Cause there's no way you can capture, especially while you're, you're experiencing it. And then as you hit that first Sunday and you hit kind of the 100 meter finals, it's this things move from group stage to, to knockout rounds and ultimately finals, things really slow down the second week and the second half of the weekend. So there's a lot more time to do those things. So if you're thinking about planning and you're thinking about, should I be going to museums and when should I be going to houses and these sorts of things, you may want to think about it a little bit that way, depending on how you're organizing your weeks. There's typically a lot more opportunities for sport in the first week. And they're actually the, I would say they're the lower priced for ticketing because you get towards further and further in the finals, prices always go up, right? And so the second week from a sporting standpoint, there's less events, they're more expensive, but you also have more time to go do other stuff. So think, thinking about your planning that way, is kind of one way to maybe target. So maybe you, you, know, you could look at the other way too. You could say, hey, I want to go do Mr. Jersey the first week because everyone's going to be watching sport and no one's going to be there. Or I want to watch sport the first week. And then so when there's less of them, I want to go see that the second week. So it really, I think it depends on what's important to you and what you're trying to accomplish. Will you take a drone taxi? No. <sighs> Pass on that one. A little early, a little early, a little early. Maybe LA 2028 and that's the way I'll get around for LA. I'm going to be alone in this drone taxi. No one will come yeah. with me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but you're going to get to where you're going faster than anyone else. There are some venues that are close together, like the Eiffel Tower and the Place de la Concorde. They're not that far apart. But getting out to the athletic stadium or getting out to the swimming venue, like, yeah, how complicated is that? It's not very. I mean, maybe you need a ha an hour and a half because I, I struggled a little bit with this when I was doing my planning because there's a couple events on the last couple of days with the finals between like the women's soccer and men's gold medal basketball game where I have like 90 minutes between the end of an event and, and the start of another. And I don't want to miss either one of them. And I, most of the times I've looked at and having been recently been there and kind of gone, I pretty, feel pretty comfortable that I can get between them and maybe I missed the first five minutes or the tip off or something along those lines. But even when you're looking at athletics and, and swimming out at defense, I think that you can get out there pretty quick. Sometimes I'm going to have to walk like I'm going to choose to walk maybe another kilometer or half a kilometer to get on a different line because I'll save 15 minutes sort of thing. But you may, so if you have some tight connections like or tight events like that, and we tend to do a few of those, you'll want to plan in, in advance. I mean, when I was in the center of town, I went out to St. Denny, which is kind of outside the the 20 to meet with a committee out in St. Denny. It only took 29 minutes on the subway, out on the metro. It did not take very long at all. It's very efficient. You've been there. What's the city look like and how has it evolved in terms of like looking Olympic? Yeah, when I was there, it was just getting started. You know, it, it just, there were a lot of the monuments that were getting kind of, I won't say a, a facelift, but they were getting either restored or cleaned. And seeing that progress, it's very clear that Paris is going to put on a uh, fantastic show. The city's going to look amazing. The rings were up at a couple of places. But other than that, you start seeing some like Paris 2024 banners, the rings in certain places. So it was just the start. And I was there what, basically 22 months be be before it started. So I think you're really going to see a lot of this start appearing. Ah, now we're here at the one year to go, right about now. What do you worry about when you're doing your planning at this point? You don't worry about anything, Ken, but what should we worry yeah. about? What should we worry about? Tickets and hotels are always the things that cause the most stress. Frankly, this year, because of what happened with the lottery, I'm a little bit beside myself because I don't really know what I'm going to do the next 10 months because I don't have to look for tickets. And <laughs> it, it was one of those things where I woke up at like 1.30 in the morning 
or whatever, whenever my time slot was, I had the alarm go off and I'm kind of groggy coming in and just log in like all these tickets are there. I get them all. Like my wife, I say like, did this just happen? Did this, this really happen? And so I think the things you just want to worry about the most are overpacking your schedule if it's your first time, especially if you don't know Paris very well. Three events in a day can be a little much. Cutting anything close with time. I think flying in, you know, what we've seen with flights the last couple of summers, flying in and having one like the jewel event that you like the only event, like the number one event that's on your bucket list and it being that same night. I think those sorts of things are pretty, are a lot riskier than maybe they were five, seven, eight years ago. So I think proper spacing for things that are the most important to you. And I think always the biggest trust for me was always been hotel, like hotels and accommodations. And ultimately something always works out and I end up in a place that was more fantastic, but I just tend to worry about that more than anything. It appears I've been fortunate so far with this. We'll see. I, I could get canceled just like every, anyone else does with a place that I have. The difference is I have mine for a month. So I think the calculus that somebody has in canceling that reservation for a month is a little bit different than canceling one that that's three or five days or something like that. I mean, you don't have to worry about the food. You don't have to worry about the drink. Like there's so much with a city like Paris that that you don't have to worry about that you might have to worry if it was in another location. There's a lot more things I worried about going to Rio, whether it was security, the lack of public transportation, exactly how I was going to get around. Thank goodness for Uber, you know, back in Rio. Or, you know, what, you know, in Pyeongchang, I got my own car because it was just impossible with the bus systems for me to get around and do everything I, I needed to do. You just don't have those sorts of concerns with Paris. Paris yeah, historically has not been as maybe I think Americans have looked at and said, hey, they're not as friendly. They were darn friendly, you know, when we were there back in September. So, I, yeah, I, the, with Paris, there's not a ton that I'm, I'm really worrying about right now. I mean, a lot of their venues aren't being created from scratch. So because of that, there's not like, hey, there's seven venues and they all have to go perfectly just so that they're going to work. So I'm really interested to see what the media decides to create some sort of a narrative that Paris isn't doing a good job because that, that, you know, it's going to come. It's almost like these, there's these four stories that always happen over the next 12 months, either about stuff not getting done or some sort of security issue or, or other things. And I'm sure those will be manufactured at some point. Well, well we already have Russia and Belarus. Yes. We have workers going on strike. That that's my big vote for yeah. for things. Yeah, I, I think a strike, strikes are a real possibility. And if you had a metro strike, that would not be awesome. So, <laughs> but that's not something I'm worrying about. I would worry about it now. I'd probably worry about that maybe come May or June if, if there are more conversations around that. Do you think the lack of ATRs has made? ticketing more efficient from an organizer standpoint, like cost efficiencies? I know they're working with a top sponsor to put it together, but I'm I'm kind of curious as like, are we saving a heck of a lot of hassle and not dealing with nine different resellers to sell our tickets and all that stuff? Oh, oh tremendously. Like there, there's so many advantages of a single ticket ticketing system. And when, when this was all coming about, it was when I've been one of the most biggest advocates for it because it, it's really the modernization of the Olympic tickets, ticketing system to really reach the 21st century. And because there's the different things that, that are happening now is every time you have a middle person in something, there is either a decision that has to be made, work that has to be done, complexity that's introduced, problems that exist, and profit that is taken through each one of those segments. And the ATRs that definitely had a big aspect of that. And, you know, the profits associated with like the hospitality packages, which do have a decent amount built into them, or going to different places, not directly either to the committee, commission on location, or back to the back to the IOC. The other thing that's really interesting is that by all accounts, in what we've seen so far in the sales, typically in the U.S., we can only buy from Coastport in the U.S. allocation. We've been buying from the worldwide allocation. So if you look at it as an American here in the U.S. or somebody living as a resident of the U.S., you are having a better opportunity than you would have had otherwise. And maybe you could argue the other side, which is, hey, maybe the people in France are not having as good of an opportunity to purchase the tickets, but they have the same opportunity as everyone else. But it's definitely a more fair on a global scale. Everything's happening in the Paris time zone. So if you have to do work and you want to go into the time zone and things like that to get the tickets that you want. But yeah, it creates, a, I would say, a tremendous amount of efficiency and a tremendous amount of profit to be able to do that. Because also the pricing wasn't standardized across all the ATRs. The pricing is oh, standardized. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now they got the, they had to pay the same price for the tickets, but they did. They all had their own hotels. They all had their own tours or add-ons that they would do to make their wave in, in terms of the aspects. And now 
because it's all kind of centralized generally through on location. The pricing is consistent, and then they can drive a consistent margin in that, which and then go back to the organizers as well as the IOC to help pay for the cost of the game. So the games are not cheap to put on. Do you know anything about opening ceremonies tickets that are free? There's going to be some. That's... But How we don't many, know anything about the process. Like and... It hasn't been disclosed yet. And there's been different tidbits posted. Certain areas will be open. Some may be raised. So some may not. What specifically viewing areas they'll be. How they'll be controlled. What is the security with all those. I think there's a number of plans that are being worked through that may or may not have been finalized. It may be revisited. But we'll probably hear about them, I would guess, in the next six months. Thank you so much, Ken. You can follow Ken on Twitter. He is at Ken Hanscom, or X. I guess we have to call it X now. Yeah. On Instagram, he is at the Ken Hanscom. And he moderates the Facebook private group, Paris 2024, Olympics planning and preparation. We will have links to all of those in the show notes. Just a note, if you listen to us via the Stitcher app, the app is getting shut down on August 29th, 2023. So you will need to find us on a new app. You can go to flamealifepod.com and we've got some buttons for on different ways you can subscribe to the show. So look for us there and don't miss one episode if you're a Stitcher fan. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at the Seoul 1988 games. It is the 35th anniversary of that event. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you got for us? And it is one year to go to Paris. So I wanted to talk about something super happy, which is the mascot, Hodori. And we've been saying it wrong, by the way. Oh, no way. We have pronouncing it Hidori. It is Hodori. Whoa. Okay. So the style... I, I feel like my Midwestern came out with just tr- making it Hidori. You made him from Ohio. <laughs> he is definitely not from Ohio. The stylized Amur tiger was chosen over three candidates, a rabbit, a squirrel, and a pair of mandarin ducks. <laughs> and it made sense to go with a tiger because tigers play a significant role in Korean folklore, where they often are depicted as friendly and wise, though by 1988, no tigers had lived in the wild in Korea for over a century. Whoa. So it was designed by Kim Hyun, and Hadori wears the Olympic rings around his neck and a traditional Korean hat called a sangmo. The ribbon of the hat is in the shape of an S for Seoul. And uniquely, Hadori was also the mascot for the 1986 Asian Games. Huh. So they got to use him twice. Yes. So very sustainable in the use of the mascots. So, unfortunately, the very lovable tiger was not without controversy. The American food company Kellogg's threatened legal action, claiming that Hidori too closely resembled Tony the Tiger. He does. He looks a lot like Tony. This was not great. Uh, (laughs) The organizing committee and Kellogg's came to an agreement that Hidori could not be used on any cereal product in the United States. Okay. So everybody stayed out of the courtroom for that. So our friend Michael Payne had shared something really funny about Hidori. Michael was against using Hidori because he anticipated the problem with its resemblance to Tony the Tiger. But the selection had been made by the Korean president. He was personally involved. And nobody was prepared to tell the Korean president no. So Hidori stayed. And it's actually quite a lovable and cheerful little tiger. He is. I would say Hodori is one of the better mascots out there. Feels Korean and yet feels very approachable. Right. And as we know, tigers and Korean mascots were a thing later on in 2018 with Su Harang, one of the other great mascots of the Olympic movement. Wasn't that a snow leopard? No, it's a white tiger. Oh. I see we know our cats. (laughs) Well, hey, you know, we need to go back to dogs. We knew Valdi was a dachshund. It's a lot better than a couple of hats. Aww. (laughs) 
Welcome to Shook Fliston. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests and listeners who have made up our very own, or who are the citizens of our very own country, Shook Fliston. First up, we have Para Archer Matt Stutzman, who finished 15th in the Men's Compound Open at the World Archery Para Championships. But he teamed up with Kevin Polish, and they took home bronze for the U.S. in the Compound Men's Open Doubles, and they got quota spots for Team USA at Paris. Congratulations to Ginny Thrasher. She got married this weekend. Yay! Also, congratulations to Andrew Marinus, whose book inaugural Ballers, which was one of our book club selections, earned a 2023 Outstanding Achievement in Children's Literature Award from the Children's Book Award Committee of the Wisconsin Library Association. Boxer Ginny Fuchs is featured in the new issue of Women's Fight News. And if you heard a familiar voice commentating water polo at the World Aquatics Championships, it was Shokflastani, Tony Azevedo. And speaking of commentators at the World Aquatics Championships, both Ollie Hogben and Rob Snoke are there covering the action. One year to go to Paris. So much Paris news. Before we get into the Paris news, we are so excited to be bringing you 34 daily shows directly from Paris. And as an independent podcast, we can get the answers to the questions you want and get the coverage you want to hear. But we do rely on support from you, our listeners, to make the show happen. We have an exciting fundraiser coming in the fall with some great incentives. So keep an eye out for that. One year to go. This is the date the International Olympic Committee has sent out its official invitations to national Olympic committees. This time around, they have invited 203 out of the 206 possibles, plus a refugee team. Who did not get invited? Russia, Belarus, and Guatemala, because Guatemala is still under suspension with the IOC. There was a big to-do at Paris 2024 headquarters with the announcements complete with a violinist playing John Lennon's Imagine. And we imagine, know how much you love that. Oh my gosh. Imagine an Olympics where we didn't have to hear that. And that's not going to be Paris 2024. Imagine all the people not listening to that song. And as you were saying that, I had like all of the people along the banks of the Seine watching the opening ceremony, like 600,000 people getting subjected to that. I think we need to bring Coriana back for hand in hand. <laughs> Gosh, that would be great. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. So the invites are out. Countries have been invited. The official Omega countdown clock has been unveiled at Port de la Bourdonnais, which is below the Eiffel Tower. So it is on. Other big news. We have a torch. We have a torch. So the torch was designed by Mathieu Lehenneur. And we're going to give you the background as to what this beautiful design means. The color is meant to be unique and radiant, sort of a light champagne color. And they are treated by a coating using a process known as physical vapor deposition to prevent stains and tarnishing because you cannot have a stained torch. No. And it is inspired by three themes, equality, which is the perfect symmetry, both horizontally and vertically water and it has a bit of a vibrating wave effect and a very reflective surface and peacefulness it is very curved with round lines so the look of it is kind of symmetrical it is perfectly symmetrical yes small at the bottom then it kind of bulges out and then is small at the top again yes which is very different it looks very different from other torches it does, and also different from other torches, only 2,000 of the steel torches would be produced, which is five times fewer than the past couple Olympics. So this is going to be collectory because they're actually passing the torch. They're not passing the flame. Wow. So that means torch pairs will not get their own torch. In the past, they've been able to buy it. Hmm. Can't do that this time. We're going to have the same torches for the Olympics and Paralympics, but different cauldrons. Oh, that'll be interesting because they have not released anything about the cauldron, though. I don't think they will. I think the cauldron will be a reveal at opening ceremonies. We don't even know where the cauldron's going to be because the opening ceremony is on the river. 
at least for the Olympics. Yeah, that'll be very, very interesting. It's kind of interesting when you, because you said the torchbearers won't get their own torch. And they're probably going to get some kind of memento, though, for being part of the relay. So says Inside the Games and some of the stuff that I read. So it'll be interesting. I bet it'll be a little mini torch, like candle size. Or a lighter. (laughs) It is France. They do smoke. So... Some people love it. Some people are very excited. Some people are concerned about how difficult it's going to be to hold because of that symmetrical design. Where do you grab it? Do you grab it on the bottom and then it becomes top heavy? Fast Company said it looked like a giant vape pen. You know, I don't vape. I don't know anybody who vapes. So I don't really know what they don't really know. I think it looks like a giant cocktail shaker. I could go for that. And it does in a way. It's like two cocktail shakers like on Mouth to mouth against each other, correct? And you hook it up and like it looks like a fancy yeah. shaker that you get at, you know, yeah. Pottery Barn and you put it on your bar cart and you discuss it. <laughs> but it is cool that, I mean, right above where you would hold it, it's kind of wavy and you see that water reflection imagery there. And then it's just, it's very simple and it's elegant. I think it's very French to be quite honest. See, I wasn't sure it was very French, but I do hear what you're saying about it being just elegant and simple and the color and the surface of it are stunning. Mm -hmm. So it'll be a very interesting one, I think. Iconic? We'll, We'll have to see. When I first saw this, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I, as I looked at it more, I really dug the water like pattern on it. I'm not sure what I feel about the plainness and the simpleness of the top. But I do remember when Tokyo's came out, we were just like, oh, these are beautiful. So that did not get the same initial reaction from me. But I think this one is, it's a nice torch. And imagine how many martinis you can mix in that thing. (sighs) That gets me excited. (laughs) And speaking of parties. What is this about a catwalk? Well, this is actually, when you look in the French press, they were calling it a catwalk. Everyone else was just calling it a parade. So there is going to be Celebration Park right by the Eiffel Tower. And every evening, there's going to be a parade where all the medalists from the previous day are invited to march in this parade with fans. So any sport, any medal will get there. So even if they're not doing the medal presentation in the plaza. I don't we have we don't know yet if they're having a plaza. So whatever venue, you will have a chance to come to this spot and have this parade of all the medalists. And this will be every day except for the day of closing ceremonies and then a couple of days early on where they're having events right by the Eiffel Tower. Holy cow. So about 15,000 people can be accommodated in the park. It will be free and unticketed. Wow. That'll be interesting. And in addition, they will have a giant screen set up playing the finals from that day. So if you didn't see something, you can go down and be with the fans to watch the medal events. That's going to be cool. Cool experience. Something else you can do if you only have tickets for one or two events or you didn't get tickets at all and are going hoping that there will be something you could see beyond marathons and bicycling, road races, and triathlon. Here we go. Here is another opportunity to do something for free. This is a unique idea and something different. I see if it works and is really cool and the athletes love it, I see that is something that keeps going forward with other. Olympics. We'll have to see how many medalists are actually able to participate because if you've got like swimming and track, they've got other, most of them have other events. So they won't be in there. And then will people who are in events farther afield come into Paris when their event is done to participate? I don't think the surfers will be there. No. And maybe not the Australians since they get sent home. Speaking of the Australians, here's a piece of news that they will get excited about. Moet Hennessy will have wine and spirits in the hospitality area. (laughs) That's if they can get into the hospitality areas. 
<laughs> but that's true because LVMH Group, which owns Moet Hennessy and a whole bunch of other luxury brands, they are now an official sponsor of Paris 2024. They've invested $166 million, 150 million euros. They will be making the medals. That is coming from one of their member companies, it's an iconic Paris jeweler called Chaumet, and they will be designing the medals, which is interesting because you would have thought that the metal design would already be like underway. But maybe they've been working on it or somebody's been waiting. You know, if you were a jeweler, wouldn't you be like doodling medals? They might have something going on. So that might be a reveal for 100 Days Out. Oh, that would be a good reveal for 100 Days Out. Or even if they're lucky, like hey, it's Olympic year on January 1st, here's the medals. But that would be a good one. Also part of LVMH group is Sephora, and they are partnering for the Torch Relay, and there's going to be special Sephora pop... They call it activations. I really hate that business term. They're going to have activations around the Torch Relay. So look for them to be a presence there. Oh, I have a business idea for Sephora. Yes. The Torch style as a lipstick. <gasps> yes. And you could even make a dual sided. So like it opens from the middle and like one is a lipstick and the other is your gloss. I love that. I love that idea. And since the runners don't get their torches, they have to get a goodie bag from Sephora. Yeah. Little dry shampoo, little refreshing spray because, you know, your 10 yards of running can really... <laughs> Mess with your face powder. (laughs) I love it. That could be, I mean, seriously, they could come up with some really cool stuff and put it in the store. I love that torch lipstick idea. A powder compact that looks like the metal. Love it. Or at least has the Marianne logo on the front. You could look like Marianne. What, What makeup would Marianne wear? Red lipstick. Hmm. Come on, Sephora. Let's not disappoint. I don't know if this is a disappointing thing or not disappointing. Maybe if you're an athlete, this is disappointing. Those cardboard beds are back. <laughs> you would think with France being you know, so famous for design, they would not go with the cardboard beds that we saw in Tokyo. But, oh, the sustainability. The sustainability talks about those. The comfort level, mm, we've heard... I'm, I mean, how sustainable can they be? Because you're using all that cardboard that then has to get recycling. I would think making a real bed and then donating it to homeless shelters or hospital or something that could actually use more beds. That's a good point. Or, I mean, I wonder if these beds can get reused much. I don't remember what the lifespan of the bed is, but maybe they can get used again for different facilities that could use beds. It's an interesting phenomenon. I will say that. Of all the sustainability measures, I did not think, I did not have cardboard beds returning on my bingo card. (laughs) True, true. But I will say cardboard is one of the easiest things to recycle. True. So that I can see happening and them getting reused. Now I want to go and look up what happened to the Japanese beds. Did they get recycled? What happened to them? And speaking of things that may or may not last. (laughs) That's an excellent segue because Team USA, in their one year to go announcement, decided to celebrate with tattoos. And they have partnered with a company called Ephemeral Tattoos to give away free tattoos that are made to fade. So there's a set of 10 flash tattoos. Designs include the torch, go for the gold and script. There's an elegant diver, which looks like a pretty big piece of ink, and a B-boy or B-girl that you could get tattooed. They are designed to fade in one to three years. But as the New York Times reported in February, which was an article I was very interested to read, people don't always have such luck with their tattoos fading when they were supposed to. And with the fade being even. So your mileage may vary on the fading of these tattoos if you get them, but they are doing a giveaway all across the country. You can sign up between July 26 and August 31 at teamusa.com slash road to Paris for your chance to win. Well, you know, the go for the gold would fade that to something that would I would love because it would be just like, oh, you're old. <laughs> 
But yeah, I want to know if anyone gives these a try and how it works. Let us know. We want to see pictures, everything. Keep us posted. It's an interesting idea. I give Team USA credit for thinking outside the box on this one. And speaking of sending us pictures, it's one year to go. It is the perfect time to get your Keep the Flame Alive merch. So flamealivepod.com and there's a link to store at the bottom of the page that will take you to our storefront. You can get t-shirts and tank tops and hoodies. And we want to see you take some pictures at any sporting event you go to, trials, qualifications, your kid's basketball game, and show how you're keeping the flame alive. And that will do it for this week. Let us know what you are excited about for Paris 2024. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at flamealivepod. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAMEIT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our intern, Annalie Dable, and also to our patrons who keep our flame alive. Next week, contributor Ben will be back, and he joins us with a great conversation he had with Paralympian wheelchair fencer Ellen Geddes. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>